Welcome to Nighttime. I'm Dave Wager, your host for the next half hour. I hope to calmly talk to you about things that are in the Bible, things to think about, things that we can allow the Holy Spirit to speak to our hearts and minds about, using God's Word. I come to you from the studios here at Silver Birch Ranch on the campus of the Nicolay Bible Institute. I've been thinking about how simple a lot of the truth is in the Bible and how if we would just apply that truth, life would be much different. For example, in the beginning, God. Not in the beginning, Dave. And then in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And we can spend the rest of our life trying to figure out what created means, or we can accept the fact that created means created, and that he created the earth. Likewise, you go through and families define one man, one woman, that's the ideal, committed to each other for life. That's the way God really planned it. And we don't need to spend hours talking about how it could be different than that. Likewise, just gender, male and female. It's obvious that God created us male and female, that he created us with different roles to play. So we could spend forever again trying to redefine it and talk about it and we'll end up being confused. When you try and make something that's simple overly complicated, you're the confused one. And in the beginning, God, and that's where we have to start. When we deal with truth, we're free, the Bible tells us. And Satan is really the father of lies and deceptions. And if you're a good liar and a good deceiver, you have to be able to work your crowd so that they actually believe you're telling them the truth. So I don't doubt that there's many people that believe lies today because Satan is really good at his lies. And he's not one that's going to school to learn how to do it. He's the one that teaches others how to lie and be deceptive. John 8, 44 and 45 says, You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character For he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. There's a description of who Satan is. When we talk about truth, people shrug their shoulders like Caesar did and go, what is truth? What is truth? It's the only thing there is that causes sanity in the whole world. It's the way we're created. There's truth all around us, and it's very narrow. It's always narrow. I've had people accuse me in my life of being narrow-minded, and I think I am narrow-minded. I still think that God created the world. That doesn't leave a lot of openings for all the other theories. And not only am I narrow-minded on what the Bible says, but it also makes me narrow-minded on everything else that's true. For example, if I'm looking at the color red, it's the color red. You can't call it any other color and be okay. You can't call it chartreuse or you can't call it 
orange or you can't call it yellow because it's not those colors. And I guess if you brought it right down to the narrowest way, there's a certain shade red it would be. And the only way you would get that absolutely right is by calling that color by the color that it is. Every other way, maybe thousands, maybe millions of other ways, you'd be wrong. That's the way truth is. It's always narrow. If anyone ever accuses you of being narrow-minded because you know something for sure, well, you are. You know, if you know the moon is not made of cheese, people can come to you for the rest of your life telling you what kind of cheese it's made out of, but you're narrow-minded. It's rock. Because it's not made out of cheese, although there are many different varieties of cheese you can call the moon made out of, I guess. In context, John eight thirty one to 47 says, So Jesus says to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are the offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my words find no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. This is getting very interesting. They answered him, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them, If you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing works your father did. They said to him, We are not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, If God were your father... You would love me, for I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of the, your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, and does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaks lies, he speaks out of his character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. That's a pretty interesting passage where Jesus really lays it out on the line. Satan is a liar and a good liar, and he's got a lot of people that believe what he says. He's got a lot of different methods and, and ways that he will try and captivate our minds. That's why we need to know what the scriptures say. We need to live in the Bible and understand that these words are not that difficult to understand. God is the creator and sustainer of life. He loves us. 
He sent his Son, Jesus Christ, down to this earth to die on our behalf. Those are not things that are hard to understand. Now, we can try and mess around with the, the meanings of created and sin and everything else if you'd like to. But all you do is complicate the very simple rather than understand the simple. Now, I was reading a, an outside book of the Bible, not the Bible, but a book written by David Mamet, M-A-M-E-T, called The Death of Free Speech and the Cost of a Free Lunch. Interesting title. He says this, Education, politics, and journalism have long been the mediators between our society's differences, providing us the chance to discuss and understand our conflicts. Unfortunately, the three are fading fast. Education and universities have succumbed to the cowardice and greed, and while politicians have always been guilty of colluding, journalism has now followed suit, weaponized by the left to incite hatred and panic. Gone are the days of professionally discussing and exploring our differences. Now the slanderous term haters covers anyone who disagrees with what's set forth by the left. But how did we fall so far from what journalism was originally intended to be? How are we now a people who accept and even praise this fall? I often think that you can't disagree with anyone today without them getting so angry they want to do something to harm you. It seems as if the faulty thinking, just like it was in Jesus' day, that if I eliminate that person, then I win the argument. The argument isn't going to be eliminated by eliminating people. Truth will stand no matter what you do to me or anybody else who embraces it. Jesus is the Son of God. They tried to kill him and stop him from promoting such things in their presence. Three days later, he came back to life and made it even harder for him. Matthew eighteen fifteen to 17 talks about what we should do if someone disagrees with us or if we've been hurt by a brother or we've been hurt by somebody. 15. If your brother sins against you, go tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. You know, as you think about that, there's an influence that people can play in our lives, and we need to be very careful that our influences, the things that shape our thinking, come from the right place. Those who are constantly trying to redefine life, redefine what they see, and ignore the simplicity that's in the Bible and ignore the simple truth are going to be dangerous eventually because they redefine things that God has already defined. And when you do that, you start putting more credence on the people and what they say than what God has said. And that's a very dangerous position to be in. However, it doesn't say when somebody disagrees with you, you get angry with them and start shouting on social media. I understand there was no social media back then, but that's not even the indication here. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 14 to 18, it says, 
Remind them of these things. This is Paul talking to Timothy. Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. That's verse 14. The Apostle Paul is saying, be careful. Don't just argue about words. You can get into argument after argument about what words mean, yet the words are easily understood. I understand what God means when he says sin, and I understand what he means when he says man or woman. I understand what he means when he says created. I understand what he means when he tells me as a husband I need to love my wife like Christ loved the church. I understand those things. You and I don't need to sit and argue about what those things mean because the obvious meaning is so simple. Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words which does no good but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. We're encouraged in the 15th verse to rightly handle the word of truth, and it's really surrounded by warnings that we can complicate the word of truth when the word of truth is not complicated. Verse 16, going back to talking about talking again and redefining things, but avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. And then he gives some examples. Among them are Hymenitis and Philitus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. See, they're arguing about their viewpoint, getting a following, making people think they're wise. That's not how we operate. I think we live in a society that loves to bully people. If you disagree with me, I'm going to beat you up until you agree with me is often the mantra. This author that I was talking about before said, bullying at its heart is the unmerited use of power. Among children, we see this in physical altercations, slander, mockery, and name-calling. Among adults, society has recently added microaggressions to the list. Bullying spreads across every walk of life and age, whether you're a child on the playground or an adult working for an aggressive boss. But back in the day, children learned to deal with bullying in a schoolyard. Children would weigh their possible options, ranging from holding their peace and forming an adult, or even self-defense, and learn to take appropriate action based on the severity of the bullying. But today, bullying sends schools into a panic over legal action from parents. Rather than students learning to resolve matters themselves, parents hold the school responsible, and what results is so-called peer moderation a discussion over a conference table where both parties share how they made each other feel. There are no real consequences, but rather a reward in the form of skipping out of class. When I read this, I was thinking of how many people with authority and power, they use their power in an illegitimate way. The only legitimate use of power and authority is when it's used to benefit people. Think of God 
He could have wiped out everyone who was sinful. Instead, he sent his only son to die on the cross for you and me so we could be in his family. That's a proper use of power and authority. People who use their position and their power and their authority to bully other people are not right. It doesn't mean that bullying will go away. It means that we no longer identify the bullying as a problem. Instead, we get everyone together and try and come to an understanding of why the bullying is taking place. Whenever anyone decides that they are going to use their authority, their power, their position to hurt another person, it is wrong and it needs to be acknowledged as wrong. We as believers don't pick up clubs and start hitting people, though. We realize that there's going to be bullies out there, and that's one of satanic tactics is to try and get us to give as those who have power and authority beat us up. What we have to understand is that nobody touches me as a child of God without God's authority. He has to prove that. You might say, how can a God of love do that? Once again, we have to go back and look at the whole picture, not just this little part. I am a human being created by God, and I have choice, and I always will have choice. And my choices really do have consequences. I can take my head right now and go beat it on a rock. That's my choice. The thing I don't have a choice about is the consequences that come with it. I can beat my head on the rock until my head bleeds and I go unconscious. That's my choice. However, if I want to go beat my head on the ground and not have a consequence go with it, that doesn't work because that's not how we're made. So there are people in the world who will bully us because they are following Satan's words and they are arguing about words and as they bully us, we should have the proper response, knowing that God can deal with it and will deal with it. He recognizes the fact that his child is being beat up by somebody who's lying. And he will deal with it, I promise you. Maybe not that moment, but in time. In fact, he may be using you during that time to solve the very problem. This person who is bullying you is trying to get you to respond in a certain way. And as you do, he thinks or she thinks they win. But if you respond in a way that God tells you, they never win. And they're frustrated. And they very well could look at you and come to Christ themselves one day because of the testimony you had during the trial. In Matthew 5:38 to 48 it says, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go two miles. Give the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Verse 43, you have heard that it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. 
For he makes his sun rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. God says that we will be mistreated, and when we do, we let him take care of it. Letting God take care of the injustices in the world is the most important way to keep at peace with ourselves, with God, even with our families. I'm not saying that we won't be hurting and in pain. I'm saying we'll be at peace while we're hurting and in pain. If you think that being at peace means that you're not in pain, you're not hurting, that everything is comfortable for you, then you don't understand the definition of peace. In the midst of trials and tribulations, in the midst of persecution, you can be at total peace. It's a shalom, living the way that we're meant to live in the context of the way God made us to live. God didn't make us to make sure that everything in the world that needed punishing got punished. He knows the heart of man and he knows the plan he has. What if those who are bullying us and hurting us are those that God is working at in a very diligent way to bring them to himself and we're part of that plan? We don't even know it. The hatred we have for that individual who hurts us doesn't match the love that God has for that individual and wants them to come to himself and be with him for eternity. Perhaps he's using the struggles in our life to do that. Either way, it's not up to me to punish those who do evil. It's up to God to punish those who do evil. And perhaps before they leave this earth, they will be drawn to God, and their sins, like my sins, will be forgiven. As far as the east is from the west, God will not remember them, and they will be in eternity with us all. It's possible. See, we don't see things like God sees things. God does not count on my retaliation to make sure that somebody is punished for evil. This writer actually goes on and says, without an understanding of consequences, responsibility, or reverence, a child grows up listless, siding with whatever way of life coddles and shields him from the true responsibility and action. It is no surprise that many young people raised in this society flock to the left, which promises the avoidance of hard-working self-sufficiency through erased college debt, welfare, and endless laws to limit one's responsibility. See, one of the things that Satan does, I believe, is work at erasing what responsibility actually means. Satan would love for me to take on responsibilities that belong to God. He would love for me to be frustrated because I could never, ever do what God does, but I want those responsibilities. So, Satan would love for me to justify my hatred for somebody, my judgmental attitude towards somebody, my gossip towards somebody. 
He would love for me to redefine all those things to make them acceptable. They're not acceptable. I have a responsibility to love God and to do it in public, to do what's right no matter what's done to me. That's my responsibility. I am not responsible for the ultimate end of everything. That's God's responsibility. And what he's doing in somebody's life, what he wants to do in their life, is his responsibility. My responsibility is to listen and to obey God and to do the best I can to love you and my family and all those around me by using whatever God gives me to point back to him. That's my responsibility. And I should make sure that I do what my responsibility is instead of trying to take up God's responsibility. Not only that, I should be looking to the next generation and train them to be responsible as well. First and foremost, I do that by showing them by example how to live. Proverbs 22.6 tells me that I should train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. It doesn't say to manipulate or lie or whatever, but to train him up in the way he should go. And that's an important phrase in the Bible. I need to show him that God is ultimately responsible. I need to live that way. I need to to show him what it looks like to be subject to God in all things. I need him to understand that this life that we lead is not just about comfort and ease and entertainment. We're actually at war, and the war is costly. And the evil one is really good at what he does. So we better know the countermeasures, the truth. I need to train up a child to know God's word, to understand what God says, to respond to him. The author of this book goes on to say, Over the decades, society has come to believe that schools are responsible for raising children, not families. Now, school mottos refer to their institutions as complete homes and entire communities, cutting out the family or the place of worship. But the school was never meant to function as a parent or religion. We've often heard the saying, it takes a village to raise a child. But nowadays, education's mantra is it takes a school and a school alone to raise a child. We've allowed the schools to take over our responsibility of raising our children, abdicating our roles as parents. School education has slowly expanded to topics previously taught at home. In the 60s, hygiene classes morphed into sex education, seated with Plant Parenthood founder Margaret Sanger's ideal of controlling conception, euthanasia, and sterilization. Our history textbooks are being changed to focus on the horrors of America in place of the many great things our nation has achieved. The fruit of this is that our students are indoctrinated from a very young age on what to think, how to vote, and even how to approach sex. You know, we need to train up our own children in the way they should go, not abdicate that to the school. We need to train our own children and not abdicate that to the church or to our culture. Certainly not to the media, certainly not to social media. We need to be those who are responsible. As I talked a little earlier about living a responsible life, part of being responsible 
is living in a way where the children that God has given to us are important enough to us to pour into their lives and to train them to love God and walk with him. That comes by example, my example in my home, your example in your home. I need to be responsible to understand the fact that my actions actually do have consequences. And those consequences need to be understood. I've written a small book for the college kids, and if you write me and, and uh, ask for it, um, I'll send it to you, called Ideas Have Consequences. Uh, the bottom line really is that the idea that you and I have about raising children is going to have consequences in their life, not just in ours. So I need to understand what my personal responsibility is and live in the context of that. Or face a generation that deconstructs their faith. Well, I'm Dave Wager. There's the music. Means our half hour for tonight is gone. Perhaps the next nighttime I'll pick up where I left off here and try and finish some thoughts and this book and some other things that God has laid on my heart. I do thank you again for being a part of the nighttime listening family. I hope that you're quietly going to God with these thoughts and letting his word permeate your thought process. Thanks again. From the studios here at Silver Birch Ranch, on the campus of Nicolay Bible Institute. Good night for now.